Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. episode we are off to 16th century Antwerp, the most exciting scandalous place in all of Europe. This week's destination has been called the most consistently cool city on earth by the Lonely Planet Guide and there's no doubt that in the mid-16th century at least Antwerp was top of everyone's list. There were many reasons for this but freedom lay at the heart of them all. As the biggest port in Europe, Antwerp was at the centre of an increasingly global trade network. Its wharves weighed down with cargoes of pepper, silver and cloth. Merchants from Venice, Germany, Portugal and anywhere else you can think of came to trade and to get rich. And there was nowhere better to celebrate your success. Antwerp lies in modern-day Belgium, But in 1549, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, ruled from Madrid by the devoutly Catholic Habsburg monarchy. It was said you could buy anything in its markets. Drugs, guns, art, diamonds. Everything had a price. Our guide on this journey, the award-winning writer Michael Pye, lives just over the border in the Netherlands and has spent years combing the archives and a huge range of other sources to bring us this magnificent book, Antwerp, The Glory Years. So welcome to the podcast, Michael Pye. It's great to have you on. I've really enjoyed reading your book about Antwerp and um, I'm very keen to, I've never been, I'm very, very keen to go and visit. Um, And I know you are speaking to us today from Amsterdam, Uh, so I wondered if we could start by talking about your connection with that part of the world, your English, I believe. Can you tell us how you came to be so connected to to the Netherlands, the Low Countries? Well, Amsterdam was my father's favourite city in Europe, and it was mine too, for completely different reasons, I suspect. Yes, (laughs) mine was to do with the 1960s, his wasn't, and... (laughs) It's always fascinated me because it's the other part of English history in a way. It's, it's all the footnotes and backnotes that you need to understand what's going on with religion in England in the 16th and 17th centuries, what's going on with scholarship and inquiry and wars and battles and everything else. So it's, it's the other part of the story. And what's it like living there? Oh, glorious, actually, I'm afraid. <laughs> I hate to tell you this. <laughs> we are not short of petrol. We are not short of anything at the moment. It's a lovely city, Amsterdam, because it, is, it has all the good things about a capital. Uh, it has the opera. It has the culture. It has the sense of sociability and people coming in from all over the world. But it doesn't have the bad things. It doesn't, for a start, have a government, so that's a great advantage. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't have the embassies and all of that culture either. So it's, it's, it's a town of, what, 800,000 people? It's sort of a, a slightly inflated Edinburgh with, yeah. in, with, enormous, with an enormous role in the world, and that's quite something. 
Yeah, and lots of bicycles, which is also... <laughs> Terrifying. Um, <laughs> do you ride a bicycle? Um, no, I've decided actually that I will ride a bicycle the moment I get outside city limits. But have you ever been in a pack of predatory bicyclists in Amsterdam? It's terrifying. Well, no, but I used to live in Copenhagen and I um, I rode a bike and it was absolutely terrifying because I hadn't ridden a bike since I was a child in, in my garden at home. And then suddenly I was, as you say, on these bike lanes and people go so fast. It was very, very frightening. Um, so the next thing I'd like to ask you about is um, the way that you write history, because um, you write in quite a free, uh, imaginative way. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, your approach to how you communicate um, the historical stories that you're telling. I was trained as a historian to read everything, ideally twice, <laughs> take a lot of notes and then think about it. And the whole point is to have enough detail, not to have to imagine too much. It's to have enough detail to be able to tell people with the same authority that you would if you had, oh, I don't know, a set of statistics about the price of corn, to be able to talk about people's love lives, people's eating habits, people's way of life in general, um, in the same way that you could if you had the statistics and those hard facts. And I think once you've got that, then you can get people into the story, you can present it. For example, I mean, the, the, every so often you get some wonderful moment like the moment when a great bell was being cast in the grounds of the cathedral in Antwerp. And there is enough material to know who did what, who complained about what, what the problems were, what the good things were, and what people got to drink afterwards. You know, you get the whole thing. And if you look closely enough, then there is the material to do that. And how did you do... I mean, it is meticulously researched, and I can't imagine how long it must have taken you... Can you just tell us a bit about the, the sources that you used and how you found them? Well, I started from a very simple idea, which was that I was a foreigner writing about Antwerp. So I might as well use the testimony of foreigners. And they have huge advantages because if you've got, say, an ambassador from Venice who's reporting back home about how things are in Antwerp, he has to explain things. He will give home the details of what's going on. He will, he will want to describe, just as I want to describe, the city and how it works. So that's wonderful source material. And you find it in all sorts of places. I mean, the Venetian records were very important because Venice and Antwerp were deadly rivals. So Venice wanted to know everything that happened in Antwerp. The Medici records in Florence were, were extraordinary because uh, Cosmo Medici was a great gossip and really loved the idea that he could find out what was happening with other people in, in Antwerp. Though he was often quite cross about what people were saying about him, but there you are. <laughs> um, can't have it both ways. And there were oh, Protestant divines in Zurich who were in great contact with Antwerp because they thought it was a safe place that people could pass through to some even safer place. All of these things give you a sort of... It's sort of like trying to build up a stereoscopic view of the yeah. city. You're looking at it from enough different angles to give you some confidence that what you're presenting is what is something like how it was. Um, and isn't it true that the that actually the the records in Antwerp themselves were destroyed in a in a fire? It's not true that it, it's not true that all of them were, but towards the end of the period that I'm writing about, um, the Spanish fury happened, which was when the Spanish, rather foolishly, having brought in a large number of soldiers to tame Antwerp, forgot to pay them, and after forgetting to pay them, they forgot to feed them. 
This made the soldiers quite understandably rather furious, and unfortunately what they did was to come out and burn the city and drive people to the walls to drown in the moat, absolute scenes of horror. Now, yeah. the point is, at the same time, they burnt the town hall, the newly built town hall, and it means that the records are patchy. They haven't all gone, but there's not enough of them to make generalisations. There's an awful lot we just don't know about how things worked, which we would know if we had ordinary 16th century records from somewhere else. Yeah, but presumably you can look at equivalent towns um, at that time and get some information that way. That's difficult, because what would be an equivalent town? One I of the, don't know. Amsterdam? One, well, no, exactly not Amsterdam, you see. Antwerp had this extraordinary relationship with the Habsburg Empire. The Habsburgs depended on the money they could get from Antwerp to fight their wars and keep themselves in the style to which emperors want to become accustomed. But Antwerp used that licence, that need of the Habsburgs, to make possible a city that was full of heretics when the emperor hated heresy, full of foreigners when the emperor had grave doubts about foreigners. All of these things were possible in Antwerp because the empire depended on it. But that means all of its political relationships are completely different from other towns. I mean, there are wonderful stories about some unfortunate commissioner who's sent from the emperor to rout out the, the new Christians, the, the, the Jews, in fact, in Antwerp. And he arrives and it's sort of, oh, I don't know, half past six in the evening and he's told that he can't possibly do anything at the moment. And he asks to see the Margrave, the local noble, and the local noble says, well, he's actually got a fever and it wouldn't be very easy to come at the moment. So he agrees to meet up the next morning at six o'clock. Nobody turns up at six o'clock. Um, people do agree to come at seven, but they're a bit late for that too. When they do arrive at seven, he wants to send the soldiers out to arrest the Novus Christianus, the new Christians. Um, but he's told, no, 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 you can't do it before it's light. People will just be afraid. They'll be alarmed. You can't do this. And so it goes on. And what has happened, of course, in the meantime, is that there's been 18 hours in which everybody who was on the list of suspects has got out of town mm. with the not entirely official connivance of this Antwerp itself. So it really was a unique place in this period. It was called the hub of the world. Of course, that means the hub of the world that Western Europe happened to know. But mm. that world was getting wider and wider and wider. I mean, Antwerp was where you brought into Northern Europe the, the silver from America, the, 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 the gold from Africa, the spices and the diamonds from India. All of this stuff was coming through Antwerp. Emporium Mundi, not a very exciting thing to call a place, but Emporium Mundi, not quite the department store of the world, but really very nearly. Um, and just tell us briefly about how you structured your book and how, how you sort of the period that you cover, um, just give us an outline of that. Well, I wanted to work roughly chronologically because that, I think, always helps people. Mm. It's always good to know that X happened after Y and, yeah. and you don't actually have to go back to the index to work out when it happened. But the period was quite simple to work out, actually. If you think, as I do, about the glory years of Antwerp as the years when it had this strange independence in a way, not autonomy, of course, because the empire could, in theory, have crushed it at any time, but it didn't, and it managed wonderful things during that time. So you start, really, when Antwerp becomes extremely rich, which is when the Portuguese move the spice trade from Bruges to Antwerp. 
Now, the first ship sank her in Antwerp in about 1502. So we start then. And we go through to 1556. And what happens then? There's an iconoclasm. Very suddenly, very abruptly, very small groups of people arrive in the streets and invade churches, smash the images, smash the altars, break down every sign of Catholicism. And why that matters is that Antwerp had managed to keep religious wars out of the city. And after that, it couldn't. Not anymore. OK, and so your chapters are follow this sort of chronological thing, but you tell, you focus on different people telling and tell different stories. And we're going to get into more detail about that when we get to our scenes. But <clears throat> before we go to your year, I just wanted to ask you, um, as someone who hasn't visited Antwerp, what is it like today? Do you have a sense of um, the Antwerp of the mid-16th century when you visit today? You have to look for the Antwerp of the mid-16th century because when the Habsburgs took back Antwerp, they also brought back, of course, their culture. So there are wonderful Baroque churches which have nothing to do with the 16th century. And there's Rubens, who has absolutely nothing to do with the 16th century. <laughs> and, and all the Bruegels were bought up by Vienna and taken off to, to, to be Habsburg properties, which is why they're now in Vienna. So a, lot, a great deal changes, but if you look around, yes, in the most surprising places, uh, the towers, the great palace, which used to be the Butcher's Guild headquarters, was the meat market of Antwerp, in fact. Um, the extraordinary places where the water for Antwerp was brought in. Uh, but these things are still there. You have to look. Wonderful. Well, I think we should go to your year now. So if you could visit a year in history, um, which year would it be? It would be 1549. And I've got it's a very simple reason why. I love periods when everything is open, everything is changing, nothing is settled, and you can watch the process of people trying to work out what to do next, basically. 1549 was, was the year when Charles V, Habsburg Emperor in Madrid, introduced his rather prickly and wayward and difficult and very religious son, Philip, to the people of Antwerp. People of Antwerp, to be perfectly frank, did not really want to know. The idea of having anybody with religious enthusiasm about the place didn't suit them at all. But there had to be the official joyous entry, the welcome that the city gave. And it was an astonishing thing. Can you just explain about the Holy Roman Empire at this point? Um, because it is quite, it's, it's quite confusing and I think it's important to get the sort of political map of Europe um, slightly fixed. Well, because the Holy Roman Empire, of course, had an emperor who was elected, uh, it, could, it could always be changed. Um, its centre could be changed, who ran it could be changed. But what didn't change was the power of the Habsburgs in Spain and the fact that the Spanish, through their Burgundian connections to begin with, took over the Netherlands steadily through the 16th century. Um, and that's the real power relation that matters in terms of Antwerp. So at the moment, the Holy Roman Empire is Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, Central Europe? Large chunks of Central Europe, um, not actually technically Portugal until what the Portuguese call the Philippine occupation <laughs> and the Spanish call the dual monarchy. Guess when right. that happened under Philip II. Uh, but during this period, no, Portugal is a separate entity. Portugal is a separate monarchy. 
And was any part of Italy, part, was, was Naples part of it at this point? Naples was very much part of it. Uh, in fact, Naples was, was where Charles V got his very expensive money when he couldn't get his slightly cheaper money in Antwerp. And so it's this enormous, sprawling, um, pan-European entity. must have been very difficult to um, manage and to rule. Impossible to manage. But remember, remember that certainly in Central and Eastern Europe, there were electors, the people who had the power to choose the, the emperor, who had individual princedoms, which, which they could run as any prince would his local territory. And was that the case with the Margrave of Antwerp? Did they have quite a lot of autonomy, or, or how did the relationship work at this point? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, and I don't know that actually, after, even after doing all this work on Antwerp, I can really answer it. The Margrave seems to have had a policy of stepping aside slightly and allowing Antwerp to get on with it, which may well mean, of course, that allowing Antwerp to get on with it was his policy from the beginning. I mean, you see this when the empire says, oh, this is scandalous, Bibles are being printed and published in English, they must, we must prosecute, we must hang the people who are doing this. And Antwerp says, well, yeah, maybe not. Um, it's, it's quite a useful business and we don't really have to hang and burn people, do we? I mean, we could banish them, send them away for a year or so. And all of this, there's always been this resistance to the strong ideas coming from Madrid and a really, in a way, a very brave resistance. And to what extent that is to do with the city and how it worked and to what extent it's to do with the Margrave's influence, I don't think I can answer you, I'm sorry. No, but there is this very interesting um, relationship which you see again and again throughout um, history between cities where there is a degree of toleration to all faiths and nationalities and uh, cultural success, if you can call it that, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes it works at a kind of really brute level. Antwerp just had a very efficient art market. Antwerp had production lines for turning out pictures. You could order them with a bit of variation. You know, did you want an upright one or a, do you want portrait or landscape? And the real key to Antwerp's success, as, as you mentioned earlier, was uh, its role as a trade, a trading city and, and money, really. I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, first, I don't think it's as narrow as perhaps nowadays we would think. I mean, when Ascham, the, the, the great English humanist, goes to Antwerp, he says he can't bear talking to the grandees, to the great people of the city, but he can bear talking to the merchants because they're actually more scholarly than anybody else around. Yeah. So there wasn't that sort of tension between a, a university, a clerical, uh, an academic world and the business of buying and selling on the docks. Well, no, and in, in this period, actually, the university world was quite stagnant and dry it was much more you know people like Gerard Mercator and Ortelius and and craftsmen who were pushing technology forwards and um, really pushing the boundaries of but knowledge. it's also they were much more in touch with knowledge I mean knowledge mm. is what was being landed off the ships at the docks in Antwerp with all of these yeah. strange new things but also what they meant how they could be put together how they could be used all of that stuff was coming in through trade so when we talk about there's something rather alarming about the idea of Antwerp as a business city yeah i mean even the gardens of antwerp were in one sense business i mean they they were used by by people who needed to make drugs and who needed to make medicines 
but they were also there for glory. They were also there for glamour. They were also there because they were beautiful. Yeah. And I think one of the wonderful things about 1549 is that we're in a period where people managed to do both. They managed to see the world both ways. And why did Portugal start shipping everything in via Antwerp? Why, why, why did they not ship things in via Lisbon or somewhere else? What, what was the advantage of Antwerp? Well, you needed a North Sea port for a start, and Antwerp was just in the right place. It was on the North Sea. It was close to the Rhine estuary so that you could go by river across Europe, really. I mean, mm. very close to the Alps, and then across that to, across the Alps to, to Italy. More to the point, the, the Skelt, the river at Antwerp, is very tidal. So it's, if you like, a sort of self-cleaning harbour. Um, the, the tide scours in and out, and it keeps the water deep enough for really quite large ships to come and go. And Bruges, for example, was ruined at the same period by one simple factor, mud. The main access to Bruges was just silting up, and that couldn't happen in the same way at Antwerp. And it's still, I read, it's the second biggest port in Europe today. Oh, I know, there's a fiendish rivalry between Antwerp and Rotterdam, so I, yes, yeah, I, 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 I go into this really careful no-comment mode about anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's amazing that, you know, it's continued to for all these years. I read also the Lonely Planet Guide um, says it's the most continuously cool city on Earth, which I thought was a good accolade. Well, yes, the, the Economist says that there's more cocaine in the sewage system of Antwerp than in any other city in Europe. Now, how the Economist knows, I don't know, but if the Economist says that. <laughs> that's, you know, that's one way of, t of measuring how cool somewhere is. Right, so let's go to your, your first scene. So we're in uh, 1549 and we are, I believe, just outside the city of Antwerp in the company of a lot of Habsburgs. Can you... Take us there, please. Charles V is coming, Philip II is coming, and the city is sort of ready to greet them, but not really. They haven't managed to finish everything, so what you've got is this wonderfully ramshackle official imperial welcome. It's also raining, which doesn't help matters. And things go get, are so disorganised in a way that... Eventually, the town clerk has to publish a book about it all, forbid anybody else for publishing any book or any pictures that are not in that book, and tell the story of what should have been, as unfortunately not everything was completed. But never mind, it's still quite a spectacle. It's the foreign merchants riding out in, in, in all this finery. It's the streets which have been cleaned of anything practical. I mean, you wouldn't find a stall selling bread today but which have been filled up with these extraordinary triumphal arches, I mean, made out of a bit of marble, an awful lot of stucco and a great deal of timber, and they're not going to last very long, but never mind. They are a spectacle. So the streets have been turned into an imperial city in a way. And as people go through this, they're expected to have proper reactions. Sometimes it's difficult to see how they could possibly have had the reactions that the makers intended. The Genoese put up a... a, a an arch which was full of things you could understand. I mean, it was full of Charles V winning battles and it was full of enemies being put to flight. But it was also supposed to be harmonic. 
It was supposed to have proportions so perfect that its creator said, if it were to move, I'm sure you would hear a harmonious sound. Actually, the only harmonious sound you could possibly have heard if it moved was the sound of a lot of timber cracking, but that, that was neither here nor there. Um, it's all about symbolism. It's all about theatre. All of those things that the Habsburgs always loved. And it's Antwerp trying to say, we can play your game and this is who we are. It gets so bad that actually at the time the Antwerp town hall was really not very much. The one that burnt later was a later town hall. So they decided they had to do something about having an official place to greet the emperor and his son. So they built one. They built this gigantic wooden, almost like a stage set, of a town hall with the right terraces, with the right balconies, with places for people to salute people from. <laughs> and the important thing was, as everybody noticed, it was bigger than anything in Venice, which is what they really cared about. And so Charles and, and Philip would have progressed in through the gates of the city and then progressed around and sort of perhaps stopped at various points at these displays. Is that how it worked? Exactly. And then eventually they went into the middle of town and they had jousts and fights and banquets and feasts and fireworks. And that's where it gets really interesting because there's all of this sort of civic display which you would have thought that the people of Antwerp might have understood. But perhaps they didn't understand it so well. There was, there was in the square, for, for the delight of the emperor, uh, a set of statues. Adam, Eve, snake, trees. The statues had all been stuffed with gunpowder. So that when you... To have a firework display of sorts. So that the when you sort of... They appear to have set fire to Eve's feet, which seems a rather strange thing, but there you are. Anyway, the, as the flames trickled up, so the gunpowder caught, and there were explosions and bursts of coloured flame and all the rest of it. The grandees sat on their balcony and thought, what a beautiful display. Everybody else panicked. They thought that the sound of the fireworks sounded like arquebuses going off. They were terrified of fire in any case, and the sight of fire on this scale was, was, was just... It threatened every home and every shop they had. And you have this enormous divide. The citizens, in some cases, the eyewitnesses say, sort of lying on the street trying to crawl away from this, and the grandees on their balconies saluting it. You get the feeling this can't last very long. Mm, and do you think that was... That reveals a level of paranoia among the populace with relation to the Habsburgs and... and no, I, th and I, I think it reveals not, not paranoia, but very reasonable fear of fire. I mean, the, okay. even, the, even the what's now the cathedral had burnt down at one point in this period. Um, and paranoia about plague and paranoia about everything about where they were. And the sound of what sounded like gunfire was absolutely terrifying. It meant somebody perhaps, was on the way to the walls again and somebody was going to besiege the city, somebody was going to blockade the river, perhaps. All of the things that would kill the city. I mean, that's one of the really striking things about this period, and I have um, have have done other podcasts which have focused on this, the paradox, paradoxical um, 
balance between these great cities and you know similar situation in at this period in Rome uh, and and in Florence you know these incredible cities beautiful buildings people living lives of enormous luxury and sophistication and um, culture flourishing you know in the in really astound, astounding ways but then at the same time the possibility that as what happened in 1576 in Antwerp that the city can be attacked everyone could be killed burnt to the ground the, the the sort of violence that's always there underneath it's it's sort of possible um i think that's very difficult for us today in our in our much more stable modern world to appreciate i think too people don't notice how much violence was a part of doing business it's quite extraordinary the number of assaults you get where people are cut up on the streets for not having done a deal the right way or where people go after to their great rivals and threaten them. Sometimes in the case of my arch-villain, a man who's called Gaspar Ducci, but I prefer the um, English version of his name, which is Douch, which seems to me to sum him up very well. Um, Douch maintained 20 Italian thugs to go around and threaten people, threatened even city officials on the steps of churches. Uh, and tried to murder his his nephew by marriage, uh, who was the town's other great financial power, on the steps of the bourse at the exchange itself. I mean, violence was always there. You can yeah. tell it by the regulations that are constantly being passed. No, you can't have a knife. No, you can't have a sword. Yeah. Don't do this, you know. Well, they're yeah. telling that for a reason. Well, I know that um, later on we're going to be talking a bit more about the violence, but um, before we do, we, we're going to go to scene two, which is um, a man called Jacob Jakob Bink, who is, who's Swedish, I believe, and he is enjoying life in Antwerp very much. Can you tell us a bit about his experience? Yes, yes, he's, enjoy he's enjoying Antwerp so much that we, we know about it because he keeps writing letters home to his boss, the King of Sweden, saying that he can't quite get home now. He, he will try to, but at the moment he's just making lists of really wonderful things that he's perfectly sure will be very useful to the King. And what he was listing was the, the pleasure houses outside the city, these extraordinary places. Um, there was no room inside Antwerp, really, to be totally grand. Um, so you needed to go just a little outside where you could have gardens and you could hang your bottles on the wall and where you could have your collections, where everything could be on display. He's obviously been there. He's been around the artist's studios and he's noticed the fact that art is really being mass-produced in Antwerp. It's extraordinary. I mean, even rather fine art. Um, I mean, it's everything from you could order your weeping widow and weeping children for the side of your tomb in marble from Antwerp, and it would be delivered to the church where it was going to be installed in England, rather like Ikea, sometimes with instructions and sometimes not. What you did when you didn't get instructions, I don't know. People would come into Antwerp to buy the pillars for a country house, for example. Yes, didn't William Cecil? Exactly. And, al pillars. and also, when, when, when the London Royal Exchange was being built and needed a statue of Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> guess where they shopped for one? So it was this extraordinary place. It was a marketplace for art. There were dealers already. There were people selling ready-made art. Art had stopped being a service, something that you asked somebody to do for you and had become a product that you could buy. So were there big workshops producing, copying paintings and that kind of thing? Well, yes, I mean, workshops could produce many, 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 many copies of the same image. 
many, many, actually. I mean, some, some of the images are absolutely hideous, borderline obscene. There's a terrible image of two very fleshy cherubim kissing each other, which is supposed to be Christ and St. John the Baptist, um, which was mass-produced from one studio. And, and you have to imagine the artist, as it were, as we think of them today, the great figure of the artist. Oh, forget it. This is the managing director of a factory. I mean, he's, he's producing it along the way. He may put in a brush stroke or six at the very end, but uh, not until then. And also, there were specialities. There were people who did flowers. There were people who did sea scenes. There were people who did street scenes. And you went and you painted your basic image, and you then had the canvas or the wood taken across the street to your friend who did the other kind of scene and he would fill it in. And in this way, bit by bit, pictures got assembled. Goodness me, I did not know that. So you'd have a painting and it was painted by maybe five different people. Oh, absolutely. Elements. Absolutely. I mean, authorship is really, really difficult to talk about. Sometimes there are people who sign pictures, but that's a new thing. Um, and tell us a bit more about Jacob. Um, so he's been sent by the <coughs> King of Sweden to go on a sort of artistic, cultural shopping spree. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Nothing as luxurious as that. That he had to cheat his way into. No, he'd been sent to sort of kick a, a local sculptor, Cornelius Floris, into finishing the tomb that he'd promised for a grand duchess. And Cornelius Floris was not rushing to do this, unfortunately. In fact, it was about the same time that he was saying that, really, he couldn't just go on employing Flemish craftsmen. He was going to have to bring in foreign craftsmen, otherwise no tombs were going to get finished. Anyway, that was, that was his mission. Very boring mission. I mean, what can you do? You can go and shout at Floris once, and that's about it, really, after which I suppose you could stand over his shoulder and count the chisel movements and see how he's getting on. So Blink uses his time much more sensibly. He uses it to see what riches are around him. And he sees this sort of machine-producing extraordinary art. He sees these ideas about art. And he sees, I suppose, the adaptability of Antwerp artists. I mean, you have people who could paint in a German style or an Italian style and who could actually do so at the will of their clients. So you could just order um, a German-style hunting scene oh absolutely absolutely i mean and, and the genoese did this all the time and was this quite a new thing in art yes yes because it's not art as a service again it's not something where you have an artist who is part of the court it's yeah. an artist who is an independent operator and who will do what he thinks you want not always right i have to say occasionally yeah. people would leave out members of the family or get the coat of arms wrong but uh, that <laughs> Wonderful. So that um, shows us another side of this um, fascinating city. Hello there, it's Peter here. Every week we encourage you to have a look at Colourgraph.co, which is a website operated by our friend Jordan Lloyd, the astonishingly talented visual historian. There you can see galleries of Jordan's colorization work from the US Capitol building in 1846 to the Beatles, in 1963, which have appeared on the front covers of magazines all around the world. Do check it out. Well, today I have something more to tell you as well. Jordan and the others at Colourgraph have been working on a new visual history project called 
unseen histories. This new website is his new platform for showcasing beautifully presented, fascinating stories from the past. And we'll have much, much more to tell you about the pieces on unseen histories in the weeks to come. It's a project that has been long in the making and it will be really, really worth the wait. And now I think we should go to your final scene where we're going to meet a, a, a very, how can we put it, compelling character called Turkey. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Is that yes. how you pronounce his name? Tell, tell us about him. He's part of a typical Antwerp process. All of these trading houses needed to have young people who could be sent up to Antwerp to do the work and to report back. So if you were had a trading house in somewhere like Lucca, for example, in Italy, um, you would send bright young people up to Antwerp to do the work day by day. Sometimes the bright young people were not that bright, although they had other talents. Turkey is a scandal. Turkey is gossip that eventually made its way all the way across Europe because people wanted gossip from Antwerp. And the Turkey story is phenomenal. It begins with an illicit affair, of course, what else could start it? And it ends with Turkey being executed on the main square of Antwerp in the horrible chair, like a torture instrument that he devised for committing a murder. It's a wonderful story. I mean, it, it, it's tabloid front page all the way through. And merchants from Antwerp, we know, uh, would travel with it and tell it at dinner parties. So that's how we know the story in such detail. We know it from somebody who heard the story and who wrote it down. Torquay was a failure. He came up to do bright, clever things, but he didn't manage to do them. And he got into the circle, and probably the bed, of a remarkable woman called Maria van der Verwe, who was very well connected and who had been thought of as a logical person to marry into the House of Orange. She was so well thought of that she insisted on every suitor giving her a portrait of himself, and she had a gallery of 40 of them in her house. So, I mean, this is somebody who is a social success, you know. Unfortunately, she started trying to hand over her financial affairs to Turkey, and everybody said to her, don't do it. This one is not reliable. This one is not good. But she did. She wanted particularly to sell land and have money. She wanted to be in the fashionable money markets rather than just having assets outside the town. So she went ahead with all of that until finally Turkey was brought out, I suppose one would say, as the crook that he actually was. And he was challenged by a fellow merchant called Deodati. But of course Turkey couldn't stand that. If he didn't have Maria van der Verve, he didn't have social position in the town. He actually didn't have money to play with in the town. Didn't have position at all. So he murdered Deodati. And it became a particular scandal because of how he did it. It involved a chair. If you were foolish enough to sit down in this chair, great iron bars suddenly shot out across your thighs. So you were imprisoned. You couldn't move. That was the point at which Turki and his servants took a dagger or two to the unfortunate Deodati. And, of course, the scandal goes, as I say, across all of Europe. And sorry, he actually invented this chair for well, that's this an interest, purpose. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, the more the story was told, the more he was this really wicked, diabolical inventor. The other possibility is that he borrowed it from a cousin of his, and we don't like to think about what the cousin was using it for. No. Um, so he murders Diodati, and then, and then what happens? And then he's on the run. He is a merchant on the run. 
and he finally is brought in and told that he will be, as usual, tortured, because that was usual when there was a the charge of murder. And he confesses the full story and is eventually executed. But listen to what the story is really about. It's about failing in a town which is all about action and deals and success. He was failing. He couldn't bear it. He was dependent. He couldn't bear it. And he eventually goes to these extraordinary extremes. And do we get any sense of what, I mean, was he very charming? How did he manage to get in the position of advising this um, woman in the first place? Well, he must have been very charming, certainly. And, and, and he must have been plausible because he got access to her house and her, her circle. And that took some doing. No, I mean, he was like a number of the other Italian merchants. I mean, these were people with money, people with grace, people with an eye for pictures, people who had a sense of culture, people you might very well want to have to dinner. Just it would be very silly to take them to bed. Yeah. And just talk to us a bit about the role, the position of women, and because they, they had quite a lot of freedom, didn't they, comparatively speaking? Oh, they had a huge amount of freedom, comparatively speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's one way to sum it up. Guicciardini, the merchant who wrote about the Low Countries at great length, um, said that the men were always so drunk in Antwerp that it was left to the women to do business. He then said in the next sentence, but the women are drunk quite often too. So that wasn't quite such a claim on virtue as it seems. The difference between society in Flanders and society in Italy was that people married much later. They were not under pressure to get all the dynastic things and the dowry things sorted out at the age of 16 or 17. And the result was that both men and women had periods in their lives when they could do what they wanted to do. They could go abroad, they could choose a profession, they could choose an occupation. All of these things were possible. And it meant that when marriage happened, women didn't give up quite as much of their independence as was usual everywhere else because they tasted it and they knew mm. what they could do with it. So in law, a woman could be a business person in her own right all of the things involved in you know, getting money, doing deals, as long as she was not actually operating in the same business as her husband, which I presume would just have confused everything. Mm. Um, a lot of sort of ability to do independent things. You look around Antwerp. I mean, there are women in marine insurance. Wait a minute. I don't think that happened in many other places. There's a wonderful, wonderful, breathtaking self-portrait by Catherine van Hermessen which is, as far as I know, the first self-portrait of an artist at work. And she sits there painting with a curiously defiant look in her eyes. And it's not quite surprising. She shouldn't have been painting. She couldn't be admitted to the St Luke's Guild, which is what you had to be in order to be a professional painter, because she was a woman. And what did she do? She painted. She got on with it. She eventually got commissioned by the court in Mechelen to go and paint portraits of women, so there's a whole gallery of the faces of women that we might not have known very much about otherwise. But I could go on. I mean, there are women surgeons. There are, there are, there's a woman poet at a time when if she'd actually gone to any of the literary societies, the Chambers of Rhetoric, she couldn't have published under her own name because it was a woman's name. But she still published. And did that continue after the Spanish you know, reasserted their power or however you would put it oh very much no no 
And also, actually, you see it in the language books, because one of the things that you're taught to ask if you pass a, an attractive woman in the streets is, hath she a good dowry? <laughs> so you can tell that the old marriage market ideas are coming straight back. Yeah, and the idea that a woman is, is a commodity who's either owned by her father or her husband. I think, I think what we have to do is not so much honour the situation or, 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 or how things were organised, but honour those women who just got on with it. Absolutely, and that portrait you mentioned is is in your book, and it's. I mean, she really looks at you into your soul. Doesn't yes, she, she really it's does. A, it's an astonishing picture. It's a wonderful picture. Yes. Um, and why do you think? Can you? I don't know. What do you think it was about Antwerp that meant that women had more freedom? I mean, it was obviously part of a wider thing of just general more freedom, um, for everybody. Do you think there was there was something? peculiar about that particular about that or or was it is it not is it difficult to put your finger on well there are a dozen answers to that really i mean well, one is that of course this is a town where the men are very often going away on trading missions or whatever they go away with ships leaving the women to actually run the business and over time that means control second thing is that because so many people were coming through there were these extraordinary examples i mean there is one woman generally known as donna gracia who is, I think, the, 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 the star of the book, who was the head of the largest merchant banking operation in Europe, who was a woman who was sent to get money back from the King of France when he was being slow paying his debts. And she is an absolutely extraordinary figure. How does she get there? Well, she gets there, I suppose you could say, by traditional means. Uh, her husband left her his half of the estate when he died, of the company, the House of Mendes, but then when his brother died, he too left his half to Donna Gracia. So she was chosen by the family people who knew her best as the best person to run this gigantic operation, which is lending money to emperors and running the spice trade in Antwerp and extraordinary things. Presumably she was either Spanish or Portuguese by her name. Well, she was Portuguese. Well, yeah, yeah, interesting question. I mean, she was a Spanish family by origin, but she was one of those, belonged to one of those Jewish families which had moved across to Portugal thinking they'd mm. be safe and weren't. Um, so I suppose you call her Portuguese. Mm. So interesting. Well, I think the time has come for me to ask you um, the final question, which is um, if you could have taken something from Antwerp in 1549 and brought it back to, to the present day. With, with you, what would it be? I want to bring back a baboon. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant answer and I want you to expand on it and explain and then tell us what you were going to do with the baboon in your house in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's get to that later. Uh, <laughs> I haven't quite thought that out. People had pet baboons. Can you imagine that? I mean, Dura, They're terrifying baboons, aren't they? Yes, Dura had a pet baboon. I mean, first of all, they have enormous teeth. Secondly, they're very, very, very aggressive. And thirdly, they're herd animals. The last thing that a baboon wants to be is the only baboon in the house. It presumably, over time, will try to kill everything else because there are no baboons left to fight. I just think there's an awful lot of this sort of keeping exotic animals in strange corners, and it would be very nice to liberate at least one like that and do you know of any particular baboons that were being kept in Antwerp at this time or are you just well no I would go back to Dura's baboon otherwise you see I'd have to liberate an either an elephant or a rhinoceros and I I don't think I can do that really I mean 
I think, yeah, I think that would be tricky to transport. But I don't know, a baboon would be quite tricky as well. I think we'd have to have a cage of some kind. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes. I wasn't thinking of sort of sitting beside <laughs> the baboon on KLM, you know. That. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're right. And I think that's something um, I, I did uh, an interview with Philip Hall about Dura. I don't know if you've read his book, but we did talk a lot about the things that Dura collected and... Um, the, well, the whole idea of a cabinet of curiosities, which, of course, would often include live animals um, from the new world. Um, so I think that's a great answer. Um, and um, yes, I just hope that you can find somewhere safe for the baboon to live. Um, straight, straight, straight back to Ethiopia, I think, probably would be the, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. kindest thing to do. <laughs> um, thank you, Michael, very, very much indeed for coming on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, that was a great pleasure. Thank you. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Michael Pye the other day about his thrilling new book, Antwerp, The Glory Years, which is available now in all good bookshops. For more information about this episode and all our other ones, please visit our beautiful website, tttpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>